Good morning. All right. Thank you for that, Mary Ann. Excited about everything we've got going on with our with our children. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and open up to the book of James. Chapter one. And today we're going to look at. Verses five through eight. So again, that's that's James chapter one, verses five through eight. This is the word of the Lord. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that you're a God of mercy and grace and love. God, you're steadfast and loving God. That's just your character. We see that all throughout the scriptures. So, Lord, since that is who you are, we have no choice but to put our hope and our trust in you. Lord, as I stand before your people, I stand and ask that you would move. Spirit, I need you to move because If you don't, I'm just up here blowing hot air because I have no power in and of myself. I stand up here inadequate for the task at hand. Lord, if you don't move, nothing will happen. Illumine your word, Lord. It is in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit that I do pray. Amen. All right, so if you've been coming to the Village Church for any amount of time now, you may remember that I started a series on the book of James a few months ago, and I have not returned to it in about, it's in July now, so I haven't returned to it in about seven months, but I promised you guys that I was going to return to it, and I am, so I am a man of my word, right? And so today we're going to return to our our teaching in the book of James. And my goal is to preach through the entire book of James before I am sent out to plant another village church. Uh, With the state of my current preaching schedule here at the church, that should be possible. Uh, I should be able to complete that right under the two-year mark. So we're going to take this journey together And I want to thank you guys for allowing me to experiment on you. This will be my first time preaching 
through a book of the Bible. Now, if any of you guys follow me on social media, you guys would have saw my posts on yesterday and throughout the week. Um, To say that the book of James has already given me fits and we're only through the first five verses, uh, first eight verses, to say that this book has given me fits would be an understatement. It would be missing the mark completely. I, I originally selected this book due to its length. It's it's very short, and I picked it due to its its practicality. Uh, but it has proven to be an exegetical nightmare. And that's just being real. Uh, my seminary professor, Dr. Frank Thielman, uh, notes in his New Testament theology that the letter of James has puzzled students of the New Testament for centuries. So I join with Martin Luther and my seminary professor, uh, Dr. Frank Thielman, in saying that the letter of James can be very enigmatic. I'll use that word. It can be very strange. Uh, I'll, I'll give you some examples. Uh, the book of James, in the first verse, it begins in the form of a letter. Uh, we have a formal greeting uh, right, at the be- right at the beginning of the letter of James in verse number one. But from verse two to the end, uh, it is proverbial in nature. It, it reads like a wisdom. It, it reads like wisdom literature. And adding to that, from verse to verse, James's flow of thought just changes. He shifts his flow of thought in the weirdest places. He'll be in mid-sentence, and he'll just start talking about something else. So that adds to the exegetical nightmare. Also contributing to the exegetical difficulty of this book is the abundance of the Pauline corpus. And what I mean by the Pauline corpus is the collection of Paul's writings in the New Testament. Uh, Paul is responsible for about two, uh, for about a third of the New Testament. Uh, Luke is responsible for the other third, and his uh, writing is heavily influenced by Paul. So here we have a very uh, Pauline influence on most of the New Testament. That's about two-thirds of the New Testament that are very influenced by the Apostle Paul. So it's easy for us, for for me included, for Martin Luther, for Dr. Frank Thillman, it's easy for us to start to read the entire New Testament, let alone James, through the lens of Paul. Now, I mentioned, you you may or may not remember, I mentioned in my first sermon on this book, that Paul and James are not at odds with one another. They don't disagree with one another at all. We know uh, that James and Paul agree because of Acts 15, because of the Jerusalem count, uh, because of the J- Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. So we know that their teachings are consistent. But although that is true, James is James, and Paul is Paul. James's perspective is completely nuanced from Paul's perspective. 
James is unashamedly, unapologetically Jewish. <laughs> but Paul is all things to all men. Uh, James uses the themes of law, faith, and work much differently than Paul does. So to help us understand going forward, I want us to take off our Pauline glasses and understand James for James. I want us to understand James still within the context of biblical, canonical, and redemptive history. But I want us to understand James as a very Jewish man writing to a Jewish audience with a unique perspective that actually creates a little bit of a paradox when it's compared to the writings of Apostle Paul. We have to be honest about that. Now, a paradox is a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to a common sense, uh, opposed to common sense, but yet is perhaps true. So that's a paradox. Uh, You can actually witness a paradox in the book of Titus where the Apostle Paul says, uh, a, a Cretan philosopher says that all Cretans are liars. But if a Cretan is saying that all Cretans are liars, then why should I believe that? So that's, the, that's called a Cretan paradox. I want you guys to go research that. <clears throat> uh, so let's just examine some of this paradoxical uh, difficulty, if you will. So Paul says in Ephesians 2 and 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. But James, in James 2 and 24, says, You see that a person is justified by works, and not by faith alone. My brothers and sisters, how can both be true? That's what I want us to talk about today. Today I want us to consider as Christians how we can and should, and I would go as far as even saying that we must embrace the paradoxical realities of our faith. Today, I want to encourage us to doubt our doubts. I want us to doubt our doubts about God. I want us to unbelieve our unbeliefs about God. Because our faith, in essence, is when we, by the power of the Holy Spirit, unbelieve the unbelief that we have toward God. I'll say that again. Our faith is when we, by the spirit of wisdom, unbelieve the unbelief that we have about God. Now, James is writing this letter to persecuted Christians in the diaspora. And this letter is a bit of a practical wisdom for them. Uh, he, James wants them to put their faith in action in light of the trials that they're facing. I want us to see the practicality of James's words in three ways. I want us to see 
the practicality of James's words in three ways. First, I want us to see a commission. Second, I want us to see an instruction. And then thirdly, I want us to see a warning. A commission, an instruction, and a warning. So first, let's examine James's commission. So James starts out in verse 5 with the classic Jesus juke. He tells the people of God to pray. Ain't that just like a Christian? You know, like that's the Jesus juke answer. It's like, what should I do about this? Well, pray about it, you know. But it's good that James starts there because James, uh, his encouragement to pray is more than just a, a cliche, uh, Jesus jukeyish uh, encouragement to pray. Now, in the in the original language, uh, James's encouragement to pray is what's called an imperative. An imperative carries with it all of the weight and authority of a command from a high-ranking official. And my brothers and sisters, James loves the imperative. <laughs> James uses the imperative more than 50 times in this short letter. So a way to understand what James is saying here in verse number five is this. James is getting at this. He's saying, if anyone lacks wisdom, he must, he had better ask God. It is imperative if you lack wisdom to ask from God. But it's very peculiar in verse five, what James tells this persecuted uh, segment of the body of Christ to pray for. James tells them to pray for wisdom. Now, isn't it peculiar? Think about it, that James didn't ask them to pray specifically to be delivered from the persecution from the trials of various kinds that he said they would face. He told them to pray for wisdom. It is because James has made it clear in the preceding verses that the testing of their faith by trials will produce completeness in them. So he tells them to pray for wisdom, how to count it all joy when they meet the various trials that they would meet. Now, my brothers and sisters, this this wisdom that James is talking about here, it's not merely the ability to make good decisions. It's not merely that. This wisdom is, is, is not the wisdom of man, but this is a transcendent wisdom that God imparts to all those who are close to God. This kind of wisdom is only possible from the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You see, this type of wisdom is is often mentioned in Scripture right alongside the Holy Spirit. You see, in Acts 6.3, Scripture tells us, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. We see this again in 1 Corinthians 2 and 13. It says, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but by the spirit, 
interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, in light of the fact that we always see this concept of wisdom and the Holy Spirit together, some scholars believe that this wisdom that James is speaking of is the spirit itself. And this is not too much of a reach because God, through Christ, is the sender of the Holy Spirit. And God is the giver of wisdom. We see in John fourteen twenty six, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So in this text, we see that James is also highlighting the fact that God is the source of true wisdom. God, true wisdom comes only from God. Job 12, 13 tells us, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. Proverbs 2, 6 tells us, for the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Verse number five also highlights an often overlooked characteristic of God. This characteristic is God it is it notes that God is characteristically giving. God is a characteristically giving God. Uh, in the Greek, it, it, it kind of reads like this. Uh, the giving God who owns wisdom gives to all generously without reproaching. So in the Greek it specifically refers to God as the giving God. Again, I'll read that again. The giving God who owns wisdom gives to all generously without reproaching. So what does it mean for God to give generously without reproach? You see, the words generous and the word reproach in the original language They share similar meanings. Uh, James is saying that God gives in a straightforward way without giving a second thought. God is not reluctant to give. God gives without the need or expectation of anything in return. And although we as the people of God, we get the privilege to worship and serve God, our worship adds no value to an already perfect God. God is already perfect. Our worship adds nothing of value to a thrice holy God. So God is the perfect giver of divine wisdom, and he wants to graciously lavish gifts upon his children without bringing charges against us, and without exploiting us. So my brothers and sisters, I'm going to straighten my hat out for this one. My question for you is where are you turning for wisdom? Where do you go to for wisdom? Where do you run for wisdom? My brothers and sisters, is it the New York Times? Is it NPR? Is it Fox News? Is it your favorite radio show? Perhaps it's your favorite social commentator. 
But maybe it's your favorite celebrity pastor. Maybe it's your spouse or your parents or your mentor. And it is good to have people like that in your life. It is good to have people to help you walk through the negative struggles and trials in life. I don't believe that James is uh, directing us uh, from wise counsel because he's giving us wise counsel, right? But James has issued an imperative command that if we need wisdom, if we need anything at all, we should necessarily and immediately be inclined to go to our Father in prayer. Because God is the greatest first responder of all times. He's better than the National Guard. He's better than the fire department, the ambulance, or the police department. He is the greatest first responder of all times. So that's James's commission. So now let's look at James's instruction. In verse 6, James tells the people of God to pray in faith without doubting. Again, we run into James's love of the imperative. It's all throughout the book of James. He loves that imperative, which makes this, again, an exegetical nightmare. <laughs> but again, James is making an, an authoritative command here. James can be understood to be saying, you must ask in faith without doubting. You had better ask in faith without doubting. It is imperative that you ask in faith with no doubt. You see, James contrasts faith and wisdom with doubt. James says, it is by faith that we will be given wisdom, the wisdom that we need from the Lord. Now, that doesn't sound much unlike the Apostle Paul. But even more so, it sounds like Jesus is teaching in Matthew 21, 21 through 22. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up, thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Our brothers and sisters, the question that I have for us today is why don't we believe this functionally? Uh, Pastor Alex always talks about uh, there are things that we will say with our mouths, but we don't live out functionally. So my question to us today is, why don't we believe this functionally? You see, we read this idea of asking in faith explicitly in, uh, from the mouth of Jesus in three out of the four Gospels. We've got Matthew, Mark, and John. They all record Jesus saying this. We see it principally and practically worked out also in the Gospel of Luke and in all of the other New Testament writings. Uh, James, though, he shows us exactly why we don't believe it. It's doubt. It's doubt. And it, the same for the first century man 
and I would say in, in different ways to an, to an even greater extent, the 21st century man is a victim of sin and we're also a victim of modernity. I'll explain what I mean by that. The 21st century man is impacted by the skepticism of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment uh, was the period in which man started to collectively doubt the, exist- the existence of God. See, there were always little pockets of people who doubted that God exists, but it was always at a lower level. The Enlightenment brought skepticism and disbelief in God to the mainstream. And we're all in some kind of way affected by the skepticism of the Enlightenment. From the Enlightenment, people doubt that God exists. People doubt that God is all-knowing. People doubt that God is sovereign. And we as the people of God, we sometimes doubt that God is loving. We sometimes doubt that God is good. We sometimes doubt that God is listening, and we doubt if he cares. As Christians, we sometimes even doubt that God is capable of changing our broken situations. But again, my brothers and sisters, I want to encourage us to doubt our doubts about God. Because our faith, in essence, is when we, by the spirit of wisdom, unbelieve the unbelief that we have toward God. Now, it is of note that James contrasts the spirit of wisdom with a metaphor of a wave being tossed and driven by the wind in verse number six. The spirit of God is often understood as the wind or the breath of God. Now, a common illustration for the spirit of God, and and I would say that this is is actually a decent illustration, but a a common illustration is to say that uh, we are filled by the spirit just as a glass is filled to capacity, completely filled by water. I say that that is a decent uh, uh, illustration for the filling of the Holy Spirit because the Spirit does fill us to capacity. It fills us uh, completely. But I will say that something more could be said uh, because there is no movement happening in that illustration. Uh, a glass is stationary, and it's almost inanimate. Uh, I think that a different way to think about the filling of the Holy Spirit is to think of the Spirit as the wind or the breath of God that fills the sails of a boat, and it directs us in the way we should go, rather than a boat being tossed and driven by the waves of the sea. And so when James mentions the turbulent seas in verse six, he's likely thinking about the various trials, the trials of various kinds that he refers to in verse number two. So when trials of various kind come, doubt will cause the double minded man to be unstable. But what does James mean by the double minded and unstable men? that we see in verse 8. 
The double-minded man is someone who who tries to believe the truth and a lie at the same time. The double-minded man in James is someone that is attempting to believe the truth about God and a lie about God at the same time. Now, this is not a paradox, which we referred to earlier. This is not someone trying to be spiritually moderate. This is not someone trying to be politically moderate. This is not someone trying to be socially moderate. This is someone who is trying to outright believe an absolute contradiction about God. And I believe one of the greatest schemes, one of the greatest tricks of our adversary, the devil, is to get us to be double minded about God. The enemy's tactic is to make a paradox about God's character seem like a contradiction. But my brothers and sisters, there are no contradictions in our God. God cannot be loving and unloving at the same time. God cannot be merciful and unmerciful at the same time. God is not patient and simultaneously impatient. God cannot be slow to anger and quick tempered at the same time. Our God is a God of love for his children, but he is also a God of wrath for the sons of disobedience. God is a God of mercy for his children, and he has a divine even forbearance for evil. But God is also a God of justice that will someday punish sin and evil. My brothers and sisters, there is no contradiction in God. So when you are beginning to doubt that God is good or when you are beginning to doubt that God is loving or that God is merciful or that God listens or that God cares or that God is capable to change your broken situation, my brothers and sisters, I want you to doubt your doubts. I want you not to believe your unbelief. We see this concept of not believing our unbelief in Mark 9, 23 through 25, when a man brings his possessed son to Jesus. Uh, This man is struggling with a little bit of doubt, but his active faith overcomes his doubt. And he says to Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. That man is doubting his doubt. He is unbelieving his unbelief. And my brothers and sisters, I hope this one causes you to struggle a little bit because I want you to go back and read your Bibles. We ultimately see this in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see this in Jesus as Jesus is preparing to face the wrath of God on Calvary on our behalf. As the weight of sin and the reality of separation from the father is setting in on Jesus, Jesus, God, the son, God, truly God, truly man. Jesus says to the father, father. If you are willing, remove this cup from me. But Jesus begins to doubt his doubts. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus willingly endured the cross on our behalf so that we could be made righteous. He doubted his doubts at Gethsemane. And my brothers and sisters, I want you 
to doubt your doubts. When your flesh seems to be getting the best of you, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the hype. Finally, I want us to see a warning from James. I want us to see James James's warning here. And I want to kind of demonstrate this through an illustration. Y'all don't talk about me. And when I was a kid, uh, we used to go to the store with my mom. And before we would go in the store, my mom would have a talk with us. Excuse me. She would give us a warning. Her warning would be twofold. The first thing my mom would say, when you get in this store, don't show your behind. Act like you got some home training. The second thing my mom would say, when we go in this store, don't ask for nothing. Because I ain't got no money. So she was setting an expectation before we entered the store that I shouldn't expect anything from her. And I didn't understand what my mom meant. Excuse me. I didn't understand what my mom meant by that until I got older because I would see her. This was before debit cards. And I would see her like open up her billfold and it'd just be like, you know, like money, like you could just, you know, like it's coming out of the money count machine. I'd be like, what do you mean you don't have any money? I see it right there. Yeah, uh, children keep living. I'll just say it that way. <laughs> but she was setting an expectation for us that when we go into the store with her, don't expect anything. In verse 7, James says that the doubter, the double-minded man, and the unstable man, again, his love of the imperative, must not Expect to receive anything from the Lord. Again, he's saying, you better not. It is imperative that you know that you shouldn't expect anything from the Lord. Again, this is James using the imperative again. He loves it. But he is saying something very practical here. Although God is a gracious God, a double-minded man Shouldn't, re- shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord due to his double-mindedness. It has nothing to do with the fact that God is being ungracious. Because James defines God as the giving God. The double-minded man shouldn't expect anything because he's double-minded. He's kind of like the person that's getting ready to play hopscotch. And then no, should I get in? Should I go in now? God is graciously putting a platter before us. And the double-minded man is just like, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know if I want that. So it's not, it has nothing to do with the lack of graciousness from God. The double-minded man shouldn't expect to receive anything from God because he's double-minded. Because he's unstable. Ultimately, and this is this is one of the reasons why I, I struggled with this 
is because I, I started to read this through Pauline through a Pauline lens. But ultimately, for James, this person isn't even a Christian. Ultimately, for James, if you can be identified this way, if this is your character, then you may not even be a believer at all. For James, this person is the true hypocrite, the ultimate hypocrite. And hypocrisy is their identity. And it's not a momentary struggle like we have as the people of God. So my brothers and sisters, my encouragement for you today is if you're here and you're not a believer, or if you're here and you're on the fringes of Christianity, you don't know what you believe, and you're kind of skeptical of everything that you hear from Christians, you're kind of skeptical of everything that I've said today, I want you to encourage, I want to encourage you to try doubting your doubts. Just give it a shot. Try doubting your skepticism. Say to yourself, maybe my skepticism is not allowing me to give God the benefit of the doubt. I want you to look to the scriptures to pray to God, just as James instructs us, for wisdom and faith. And I encourage you to come to God in faith and repentance. Because God is a generous and giving God who wants to lavish his love on you. My encouragement for those of us today who have already put our faith and our hope and our trust in the finished work of Jesus at Calvary is that when you struggle with doubt, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the hype. You are God's child and he loves you. God is not mad at you. God is not Zeus. He doesn't want to throw lightning bolts at you. God cares about you. God cares about your brokenness. He cares about your broken situation. And just as David said, you are the apple of God's eye. You see, there's a, there's a song. Uh, i trying to remember the title of it. But one of the lyrics says, oh, above all, you thought of me on the cross above all. I think that that's an inaccurate statement. I think that, above all, the object, the subject of Jesus' uh, death was the glory of God. That is mainly what he had in mind. But the result was you and I. So God loves you. And he wants to lavish that love on you. So when you begin to doubt, when you begin to look out into the world and you see things that don't quite make sense, like I preached about last time, don't believe the lie. Don't believe the tempter. Don't believe our adversary. Don't believe your flesh. Unbelieve your unbelief. Let's pray. Father in heaven, God, I give you glory. I give you praise and honor because you are worthy of that. And 
I just stood up here and I preached this sermon. And Lord, I am the definition of the person who struggles with this. So, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help this to be real for me. Because I am the one who beats myself up. I'm the one who questions if if you love me and if if you're mad at me. Lord, help me to see that the reality is, is that you love your children. Help us all to see that. Help us to walk this out practically in our lives. How we thank you because we believe that you can do it. And in the moments that we don't believe it's spirit, the spirit of wisdom, please help us to get back on track. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.